You're listening to the Reading Envy Podcast, where I'll have what you're reading. Hi, everyone. It's Jenny. Welcome back to the Reading Envy Pub. I am here with a repeat, repeat guest. It's Scott. Welcome back, Scott. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to have you. Thank you for having me again. And just on the heels of a brief vacation where you... Yes. Yeah, I went to the Oregon coast. So I live in northern Utah and we drove to the Oregon coast, which I believe is where you're from. But the, the town that we were in, I don't think you're from that specific town, but I Newport, Oregon is where we spent a few days. Lovely. Right there on the beach. Yeah. It was about 55. Oh, nice. Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah. And it was actually sunny most of the time. I know that I talked to you. I, I was like, gosh, the weather doesn't look very good. Should I still go? And you were like, of course you should go. And that was great advice. Yeah. But the uh, what, what I noticed after that, uh, embarrassingly enough, is that every time I looked at the weather from then on, it was different. Yep. So it really is just a crapshoot. Yeah, and I grew up like an hour from there. And so we would go to the beach a lot in every weather. So oh, cool. that's why I say like, yeah, it's just like, it's just, yeah. it's never going to be like swimming weather. And so yeah, I guess you also no. probably figured out how very big the state of Oregon is. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. So we drove, so from Northern Utah, we went to Boise and then from Boise, a little bit North to a place called Ontario, not Ontario, Canada, but it's Ontario, Oregon. And then straight across all the way to the ocean. And the east, probably a third to a half of Oregon is desolate. Yeah. That really surprised me how desolate it was. It was, it's empty. You'd pass a sign and it would say like six to eight miles to the next gas station. You're like, ooh, okay. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. And, uh, and then you drive and you lose cell service. You're just out there in the middle of nowhere. And then somewhere about halfway across Oregon, after Burns, Oregon, it turns into forest. and the forest is probably my favorite landscape, I guess. And it was that way all the way to the ocean. You drive and then you could see the ocean through the trees. And then all of a sudden you're there. Yeah, it was good. So did you have some reading time while you were on vacation? I didn't have enough. We, we walked a ton. We just walked up and down the beach. But I did finish the first book that I'm going to talk about, which was cool for an Idaho boy. That's where I grew up as an Idaho to read this next to the ocean was fun. Um, hmm. It was really cool for me. So, and the book is Nyal's Saga, which is an old one. <laughs> Do you want to just go ahead and talk about? Sure, it? you bet. I'll jump right in. I was thinking about this earlier today. I don't know kind of what's been spurred in me the last uh, I don't know three or four years, but I've been reading a lot of old things, and by old things, I'm talking about like Gilgamesh. Um, I read that this year. Beowulf read the Iliad, uh, the Aeneid, and the Odyssey, things like that that are just really old documents. So I'm on BookTube, and there was a group on there they call the Sagalong. And this is the third year, and uh, I was invited to join in on that. And they've read Icelandic sagas every year. They just pick a month, and then they, they read Icelandic sagas during this month. And man, it was a ball. It was a lot of fun. And what they picked was Njal's Saga, and that's N-J-A-L, Njal's Saga. It's written in the 13th century, so the 1200s, but it's like a historical fiction at that time, you know, looking back like around 1000 AD. So there's there's two main characters in it, Njal, of course, because it's named after him, and then someone else named Gunnar. And... From the research that I did, which was not extensive, I, I learned that Gunnar and Njal were actual historical figures that the person who wrote this um, would have known about. And I'm assuming that it's a person who wrote this, and I know that there's some questions on that. It, it's unlike the other things. It's unlike the Odyssey and that, first of all, because there's no gods in it, it's not like, and then Thor came down and did the thing and, you know, uh, isn't this amazing uh, stuff, right? It's a novel. It's actually a fairly intricate thing. It's the kind of novel where the, the author will mention something, and then that becomes important later, right? <laughs> something seems to be mentioned in passing, but then later on, it's like, okay, you remember that kid that was born, you know, 100 pages ago? Well, now 
that person is an adult and this is happening, you know? So, um, <laughs> but it, you know, the, the, the cast of characters is huge, but it, it's got a lot in common with today's novels and, and it's more so it, it reads differently than something like the Odyssey, even though that it may have some of that stuff in it. But again, it's really about these two people. It, it's focused on these two people, even again, tons of characters, but there are two different types of treasured masculinity in the Viking culture at that time. So Gunnar was, he was a, he was a, a Viking, a fighting Viking, Viking, right? He, he was everything. He was strength. He was fairly smart. You know, he could cleave someone in twain. You know what I mean? He was like the athlete, but he was practically a superhero, but not quite. And then y'all, he couldn't grow a beard, right? They was, they, you know, he had no beard and people would make fun of him for that. But what his skill was, was being a lawyer. And he was just as revered as Gunnar was. In fact, Gunnar would go to Njal and say, what am I going to do about this thing? At the very beginning, what happens is there's a blood feud starts between two groups of people. Gunnar marries this woman named Halger who has had two husbands in the past that have both died. The first one she had killed because he slapped her one time. The second one was killed possibly against her will, but for the same fault, right? And Halgerd is a difficult person, as, as you'll hear in just a second. And then Njal has his wife, and is named Bergthora. What starts to happen is they start, to kill each other's people like Halgerd will send one of her servants to go kill somebody in the other family, right? For, for some offense that'll happen. And then they have this thing. The Vikings have this thing called like the, the all thing is what they call it, which means everybody gets together and they work out their differences through lawyers and stuff. Usually sometimes they'll end up fighting but what what is like is okay. You killed this guy, and there's like a, a tribunal or whatever. And then the they'll say, okay, that person was worth a hundred silver pieces. Pay that family a hundred silver pieces, and then everybody is to forget it. And they do that, and and uh, off they all go and move on, right? But there's always this not unforgiveness, right? There's this lack of forgiveness, and then what would happen is Bergthora would tell one of her servants to kill one of Halger's family. And it went back and forth like this, but yet Gunnar and Njal worked really hard every year at the All Thing to remain friends, despite the fact that this was brewing. And they were following all the rules and everything. So these, these laws and these rules of masculinity, right, in this Viking culture. So it gets out of hand. It, it goes even farther it goes well beyond this tit for tat. The, the, the whole thing um, read to me when I was finally finished with it. It felt like a critique of the culture. And I don't know if everybody reads it that way, but there were, there were little things in there. Like uh, one time Gunnar says, I, I wonder what people would think if they knew that I did not enjoy killing as much as other people do. But yet he would do it because he was like trapped in these rules, mm -hmm. right? It's like, I have to do this because otherwise I'm going to be a wimp or, or, I mean, that's not the words, but you know what I mean? It's like, I'm going to be dishonored. So I have to do this in order to have the honor to continue in my position, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. And it's what's all, expected. Exactly. And it's what's expected as a man. And He's trapped in that, you know, so I felt Gunnar was trapped in that because, you know, he's hurtling towards his end, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's getting completely out of hand. And then um, Nial, the same way. Nial is working hard as a lawyer, trying to make these deals and everything and um, trying to keep everything together. And then there comes a point where his fate comes upon him and he accepts it, right? And you're just like, you know, when you're reading it, you're like, no, come on, do something. Don't just lay down, you know? Um, but yet again, it felt like this is what's expected. Therefore that's what I'm doing. Again, it felt like a critique of it. It felt like 
when I was done, it was a critique of it. And part, I guess, the reason uh, was because Christianity plays a role in this too. Maybe about just over halfway through the book, there it's like uh, Norway converts to Christianity. And then Christianity is brought to Iceland by, you know, one specific person named Thangbrand, who can also kill somebody with a spear and is also the head of a ship. You know, he's, he's like all these things and he's also a pastor, right? So he he says mass, the first mass in Iceland, it's on St. Michael's Day, right? So, you know, the, the archangel. So, um, but at an all thing, again, this big gathering of Vikings, they all vote and they say, okay, we're Christians now. And then in the rest of the book from that point, there are just little comments thrown in, like um, somebody was going to burn someone in a house and, and he says, wow, we're going to be in trouble about this with God, but I don't see that we can do anything else. So he goes ahead and does it, hmm. you know? <laughs> so it's, it's very interesting. I, I feel like I learned a lot about Viking society, which I assume was accurately portrayed here. Although I don't know at this point in my knowledge, what the society was at the time it was written versus a couple of hundred years before it was written. Right which is what the author is writing about. So I guess I don't know for sure yet what's real and not. And th uh, that's going to be a goal for me to figure out. I think it's very specifically Iceland though, right? Yes, it is. It's yeah. the Icelandic thing. But they do end up, they spend some time in Norway. They actually spend some time in Scotland, which is odd, you know, uh, and even Constantinople. Somebody ends up in Constantinople. Oh yeah, that's so, weird. yeah. I mean, Scotland so, would be on the way between the two, but <laughs> right, right. So it's it, you know they're kind of all over the place, but there is interaction with Norway. It, huh. It's like it's like we're an offshoot of what's going on in Norway, and they'll go back to Norway, and they know each other, you know, and they're like, "Where are you from? We're from Iceland." It's like, okay, you know, we we know you and all that stuff. So there was some some scenes there like that. Yeah, it's funny because you know I spent time reading some. Icelandic literature, but a little more contemporary. And mm. I think coming to the realization that the sagas are seen as historical took me a while because yeah, I was, I was seeing them in that way of like the mythological texts, mm -hmm. but then you start to realize that no, like they're viewed as history. Like that's the, yeah. the story of how the, the culture happened, how, how the leaders happened. And so then it's like contemporary writers are often pulling in themes and characters and if you don't know that <laughs> uh, so it it's can like be a, a little bit unsettling like what's like happening a, i see so it's like a common language kind of yeah um, so the people yeah. in iceland who they're actually writing for probably get it right, right? but like right. me this outsider with no like commentary reading a translation of something has no clue and right, so yeah. <laughs> i probably should have started with the sagas <laughs> but you know i unlike you i'm not drawn to these older texts do you think it's because you turned 50 or something gosh it's possible i don't know <laughs> but i am loving it it's like you know i i think that there is something going on there because even i have read a couple of really old fantasy novels like the king of elfland's daughter by lord dunsany wow um and I'm reading these and I'm like, wow, you know, this is really fascinating because I can see where things like Lord of the Rings came from. So Lord of the Rings, there's a little bit of this Icelandic stuff in there. Mm -hmm. There's lots of Beowulf in there. Um, so you can kind of see how that kind of fed it. Tolkien was hanging around at the library and he had access to these things, right? And For he sure, was doing yeah. some translations himself. So like, that mm -hmm. makes sense. So yeah. can I ask you, like, was it readable was it written in just yes. like narrative or that's, that's an excellent uh thanks for asking that because uh, that spurs another thought but just the idea of translations because i did experience two translations in this and the first translation that i um had was actually audio and it was horrible um it, it wasn't the narrator it was the text Hmm. I was like, oh boy, this is going to be a slog. This is this is no good. But then I have um, a Penguin Classics version, and it is um, the last name of the Robert Cook, translated with an introduction and notes by Robert Cook, and it read really well. And and that's 
that's one of the things that I was trying to convey at the beginning. It's like, you know, you have the Odyssey, for example, and there's gods and it's very mythical, right? Yeah. This is not, this read more like maybe Marvel, you know, uh, the Marvel universe kind of, there is, there, there is a little bit of magic in there. Like there'll be a witch or something and there'll be a curse, but there are no gods that are acting. You know, there's no Thor coming down and doing stuff. There's no, none of that. But Gunnar is a little bit larger than life, but not crazily so, you know, so he might be like Batman, you know, where Batman doesn't have superpowers, but he does super things kind of. That's like Gunnar, right? Or like Paul Bunyan. Yeah, maybe, maybe like Paul Bunyan, maybe <laughs> like that. But, but he's not so far out that he's completely unbelievable. Yeah. It's like he's a good fighter and he can fight six other people and win. He's a right? hero. Right. But he's not doing anything crazy like I'm going into this town and I'm destroying the whole thing all by myself. I mean, it, it's not that far away from what's possible. And that, to me, felt very different than all these other things that I've read. And that's why I would never call the Odyssey a novel. To me, that's a myth, right? But I wouldn't call this Icelandic saga a myth. And I think it's because there aren't those supernatural beings in it. And I guess I should look up what the definition of myth is. But this felt like a novel. It felt like a piece of historical fiction. The only thing that it was missing that I think like a modern novel would have are people's inner thoughts, Mm. right? Like someone would lie. I I remember one specific instance where I noticed this. He was asked a question. We as readers knew what the answer was. We knew the answer was yes. And the fellow said no. And it didn't say no, he said uncomfortably, you know, or, or whatever, whatever kind of a subcontext. You don't know why he lied. So you, you're kind of bringing some of that to the table where you've got to fill that in. You're like, well, why would he do that? Hmm. You know, it's possible that in the culture back then they would kind of know why, but there's none of this inner dialogue going on that we have in our novels today where someone might be struggling with uh, the truth and <laughs> there's some reason why he would want to lie about this specific thing and he does it. Um, but here, I mean, that's missing in this. Even a character that's called a witch could just be a woman who knows some herbal remedies Mm -hmm. or killed her husband or something like that. Like it might not be super elevated either. Because I had read a novel that I loved called The Thrall's Tale. And it's about a bunch of Vikings, maybe around the same time period. I feel like it was like 10th century, maybe. Mm -hmm. And it was these three women who were all related to each other. So three generations and they... They were midwives, basically, but because they were midwives, they were also the healers and they were kind of treated like witches, especially when the people started converting to Christianity. So it was, yeah, it sounds like it's kind of the same era, but they they were in Greenland instead of Iceland, which didn't work out, by the way. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) you can't live in Greenland. It's all ice. (laughs) Wow. But yeah, this sounds good. I, I need to get back and try to read the sagas at some point. but Right. I, I even bought, I, I was enjoying this so much. I, I really serious, just, I, I love the experience. And I bought another, uh, a larger penguin book the, of Icelandic sagas. The one I'm holding in my hand is just, a, you know, the Black Spine Penguin Classic of Njal Saga. But there's also like a Penguin Deluxe Edition of um, Icelandic sagas. And it's got things like Egil's Saga, which I'm told to read. And and some others. And another interesting thing, I guess the sagas, and this I don't know from experience, I was told this, but I guess the, all these Icelandic sagas come from around the same period, and there's characters that show up in the other sagas. So oh, it's funny. not it's not unlike, you know, a comic book series or yeah. whatever. Yeah, so. Is that um, the Sagas of the Icelanders by Jane Smiley, that one? No, I think, actually, it's not by Jane Smiley. But Jane Smiley has some writing in it. She did an introduction or something, oh, okay. something of it. Yeah, I yeah. don't think she would have written the sagas, right? That makes right. sense. Yeah, so there's uh, there's multiple translators. It's uh, a number of sagas that are translated by different people. And I do remember seeing her name in it. So It has I a ship on it, the front, I think. Uh-huh. I, yeah. I can picture it. I think I bought the ebook and then completely forgot I had it. Oh, know. nice. But I'm looking forward to them. And, and Yal's saga is, is by far, I'm told, the, the longest saga. 
Mm. It's probably, you know, this book is probably 500 pages long, but the saga itself is maybe 200. It's 400 pages long. And, you know, so there's notes and introductory material and stuff. So about 200 pages of this is the saga itself. Wow. Um, But yeah, but uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Just great fun. (laughs) I don't know if you'd like to talk about it, but how I read it, I read it on BookTube with like nine other people. Oh yeah. Tell us about that. And that made it even cooler. So, so they, they just have this group called Sagalong, which I guess this is the third year that they've been doing it. And they've been reading Icelandic sagas, (laughs) you know, like in a month, this would be the third year that they've taken a month out and read that. And it's just been great fun. I mean, there are, there are people from uh, Scandinavia in it. Um, There are people all over the United States. Um, Again, I, I said nine people, you know, and, we would uh, we split it up into four pieces, and we said, "Okay, everybody, make a video every Saturday," and that's what everybody did. And then we would talk during the week. Um, Voxer, I don't know if you've heard of Voxer, mm-hmm. but that's that's how um, on BookTube we've been doing buddy reads and and things. So there's we just have a group with everybody in it, and just every now and then we'll just it's like texting and voice. We can talk that way, and then we all kind of watch and comment on each other's videos. Um, but it was a really, really cool experience that way too. I learned a ton that way, you know, to hear someone from Norway or Sweden talking about what they see in this was eye opening. I'd say, Oh, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. And then in turn, you know, I would notice something Christian in it. And I would say, Oh, that, that reminds me of Joseph in the technicolor dream coat, you know, his dreams. That's interesting. There's like a parallel right here. And then they would say, oh, I didn't notice that, you know. Um, so it was kind of this really cool give and take and really enhanced it. So there's no video of all of you talking together, but of each of you talking by yourselves after yes. you've probably had offline, well, online, but offline <laughs> conversations. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that's cool. Exactly. And we did four videos each, um, mm. one on each Saturday, you know, when we started. It was pretty much in April, every Saturday in April. But yeah, very neat. I would definitely do it again. Yeah, um, we should link to those videos too. I think I would have to spend a lot of time listening to some pronunciation videos. Like, oh my goodness, that, that was a the grandfather. Goes that was so a far. big thing. That was a big thing, you know. So I'm saying like Gunnar and Nyal. You know, these are the easy ones. You know, so yeah, uh, Halgerd is H A L L G E R D, and I think it's Halgerd. Hal. Halgerd, almost a th at the end. Yeah. And then there's like Bergthora, and that's that's the literally how it's spelled. B e r g t h o r a. I can't even remember how the folks from that the Scandinavian region pronounced it, but it was not the way I did. Yeah. <laughs> it was way more better than what I did. I can tell you that. <laughs> I enjoyed that. So I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And not only that, but you know, they're reading different translations. They're reading in different languages. Everybody's doing their videos in English, of course, but their spelling is different. Yeah, I mean, it's just cool. Like, Nial is N-J-A-L-L instead of N-J-A-L, like it's on the front of my Penguin Classic. So, yeah, great experience. A lot of fun. I'm going to read more. So, what uh, what have you got for us? Well, everyone knows that I'm super into the Tournament of Books. And this past year's tournament, Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu, went pretty far. and mm. I always participate in what they call the commentariat, which is all the people commenting on the judgment every week. And that book just kept going, going, going. It finally won the tournament. It also won the National Book Award. It wasn't a book that I liked very much. I gave it two stars, which kind of put me at odds with the rest of the literary world, I guess. But anyway, so along the way, there is this conversation and and Drew says to Ridgeway Girl that Kate Reed Petty's book, True Story, was a book that he wished that had made the list this year because it deserved more attention than it got, because it had screenplay interstitials, and it had about half a dozen modes throughout, and she really liked it too. And so my comment then was like, ooh, I haven't even heard of this book. So I looked it up, I read about it, and purchased it for myself that day, which I don't Hmm. do that often, but every once in a while. And so I finally was looking around at my books this week and thought, I'm going to finally read that book. So, okay. It's called True Story. Mm-hmm. And it starts with these high schoolers. There's a party. This girl got really super drunk. And these boys bring her home. These lacrosse players. Of course, it's lacrosse players. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of dump her on her porch. 
and with one of the jackets so they even know who did it you know because his name's on the jacket the lacrosse players go to denny's where they always go after parties when parties get broken up by police and they're bragging to their friends that they had sex with this girl and so she gets just kind of massacred in the bullying world, you know, at, at school and drops out of school. It affects her for her whole life. And then so you kind of jump from that point forward and there's her her friend Haley and the boy that really likes Haley. And he's trying to get Haley to like him back. And so he's kind of the narrator, although there's these other voices that kind of swirl around. And so then you get little pieces like Haley and Alice, which is the name of the other woman. They write these silly revenge scripts together, like for movies. Uh (laughs) And so there's a few of those in there. There's this narrative that's all in email from Alice to Haley after she's left a really bad relationship as an adult. There's this crazy story where the narrative guy, he's like just super, just a drunk. He's, He's an alcoholic and he gets kicked out by his girlfriend he's the mother of her or the the father of her child and he remembers a cabin that she has access to he goes to the cabin and he sees these people in the woods and he cuts off his hand and it's just it's not really a horror novel but there's these kind <laughs> wow. of like horrible things that happen and so uh-huh. all these pieces come together in the end to finally figure out what is the true story and I can't tell you what that is. How interesting. <laughs> it sounds weird to say it's a fun read, but it is kind of a fun <laughs> read. Like it really pulls you along and, you know, oh, it's wow. almost summer. I was thinking about it came out last year around the summertime, but, you know, publishing was in such a mess last uh-huh. year and all the books that should have had attention didn't have attention. So I thought I should bring this up because people could give it attention now. It's a great like beach read. The cover is really cool because it looks like it's been double developed. And so it it's kind of bright pink, bright blue on top of black and white, mm. which just kind of has a like a thriller horror feel to oh, it. That's cool. Did you did you find it surprising? Were you when you were so you so you're reading these different versions of events? Am I getting this right? And yeah. then it all comes together at the end. Well, Was you're it- reading you're not reading different versions of events. There's this kind of set version, but it's always come from it's not come from the woman because she mm-hmm. she was passed out and she doesn't actually know what happened. But she believes what she's been told has happened and has lived her life since then with that assumption. So therapy, getting her GED, moving far away, those kinds of things. Mm, Wow. And the only people that were there have the same version of the story. So you don't necessarily hear other versions of the story, but you hear kind of fallouts of that, like the the scripts that get written or the bad relationship she gets into later and it's kind of like this bad night that follows them in different ways, mm. either because of feelings of guilt or anger or maybe a little bit of revenge too. <laughs> um, How interesting. One, yeah. yeah. And so like the lacrosse team, one of the guys who was in the backseat of the car, he ends up going to Princeton. <laughs> you know, he ends up as a rich guy. And so he has a, a major role to play later in the story as well. And so they all kind of come back into the story at the end. Yeah, it, it takes turns that I wouldn't have expected exactly. But yeah, it's so hard to talk hmm. about books like that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm just like, what can I even say? Uh, but it's, it's really intriguing, though. Yeah. That sounds really good. Yeah, um, and I would say there's really not a lot on the page for the alleged sexual assault in the high school years, but that later on, there's stuff that happens to characters that's very much on the page. And so it might not be for everyone. Okay. But I mean, I think you can tell that from the cover. It does look like a thriller cover. And I guess that is the category I would give it. But it also kind of has that level of experimentation. So it's not just like rotating between characters and like moving through the three page chapters. It's not as traditional of a thriller as that. It's a lot more, you know, experimental. Yeah, I remember that. The, well, the last real experimental thing, I, I call it experimental, but the only good Indians by... Um, oh. Stephen Graham Jones. Stephen Graham Jones, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, as you described that, I, I heard echoes of that book in it. Um, yeah, the way that, that things intended. follow yeah. through, kind of, I, I guess right. I could see that. And yeah. then there was this revenge thing going on, mm-hmm. and then everything pulling together at the end. But yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I think there's lots of people who are haunted by high school <laughs> in different ways. Bad decisions that you make. Yeah, no doubt. So I guess wow. that's all I'll really say about that one. But okay. um, I always like to feel so inspired by someone's review of something that I just buy it immediately. Oh. Like, that's a great feeling. It is know? a great feeling. <laughs> 
So how about you? What what is your second book? Oh, my next one. So from a summer read to a summer book. How's that? Oh yeah, good. <laughs> <For a> segue. <laughs> uh, the summer book by two. I'm not going to say this right either. Tuve Janssen. That's pretty um, good. I don't know if I'm saying the first name correctly, um, but uh, she wrote this book in 1972. I don't think she's famous for this book, although I I think this book does have a following. But there was I don't know a series of children's books. Uh, the Moomin, Moomin mm-hmm. books, M-O-O-M-I-N. And I have not read any of those. Yeah, me either. I kind of want to seek one out just to see what they're like. This book is really written for adults, although there's no reason why a kid can read it. But it's about a young girl named Sophia and her grandmother that spend the summer on, I guess you'd call it a cold weather island or a, a small island somewhere like in the Gulf of Finland, I think. Somewhere like that. That's the whole description of the book. It's about 20, there may be a little bit more than 20 little vignettes. They're not even quite short stories, I I wouldn't say. I think that it needs a different word than short story because it's like, it's just these short little pieces of life between or or on this island that these these folks are staying on. And so Sophia is, is very small. Her mom has passed away. So she's there with her grandmother and both of these characters are so well drawn and it is, it is poetry. It transcends a lot of the things that I've written because, you know, and I I think you can tell I'm having trouble describing it because it really is to me that affecting. Um, When when I read these little vignettes, I just want to stop and say, my gosh, you know, there is deep truth here that she just conveyed, but in a poetic way without stating it. Through this action in this vignette, I think, you know, I, I would I would finish some of them and I would need to contemplate what I read. The book has been on my mind ever since I read it. And in that recent trip that I took that we talked about at the beginning, it reminded me of this, you know, because I was on a, a beach and there was rocky places and, and everything in this island that they're on is rocky. You know, it's, it's all a rocky place. It's cold. It's not, you know, you're not going to go out in your bikini. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a place that's cold, but yet is this beautiful island. And nature plays a role too. I, I would actually call nature a character in this. Just as well drawn as Sophia and the grandmother. So I, I just have a short little piece I wanted to read because it's so poetic. This is from The Magic Forest, which is on page 11 of the book. So there's already been two vignettes before this one, you know, so they're very short, but it says on the outside of the island beyond the bare rock, there was a stand of dead forest. It lay right in the path of the wind and for many hundreds of years had tried to grow directly into the teeth of every storm and had thus acquired an appearance all its own. From a passing rowboat, it was obvious that each tree was stretching away from the wind. They crouched and twisted and many of them crept. Eventually, the trunks broke or rotted and then sank, the dead trees supporting or crushing those still green at the top. All together, they formed a tangled mass of stubborn resignation. The ground was shiny with brown needles, except where the spruces had decided to crawl instead of stand, their greenery luxuriating in a kind of frenzy, damp and glossy as if in a jungle. This forest was called the Magic Forest. It had shaped itself with slow and laborious care, and the balance between survival and extinction was so delicate that even the smallest change was unthinkable. I read that and I'm just like, okay, I need to stop. (laughs) What did she just say there? Because she's talking about life right there. Not, Not only the life of nature, but the life of us people. And the whole book is wise like that. All these vignettes, just absolutely remarkable. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what else to say. It, it's just, it's a book that I'll have with me for the rest of my life, no doubt. Um, I feel that strongly about it. It is beautiful. Mm-hmm. I own two different copies of it. Do you really? I just oh, love it cool. so much. Yeah. That's awesome. So she wrote it in Swedish and Thomas Thiel was the translator. Okay. And I noticed that, I think I found that there's two other books of hers that he translated. I was looking up because I know Fair Play has been on the podcast twice. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah talked about it on episode 88 and I talked about it on episode 198. And mm-hmm. it's also set on a cold island, but I think it's I think it's supposed to be based kind of on her relationship because it's about these two women that live on this house on this tiny island at the end, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Because uh-huh. you can watch videos of her where she lived, right? Um, yeah, on and YouTube I looked and some of that up. Yep. So cool. Yeah, it really is. But yeah, just beautiful, beautiful poetry and meaningful. Um, I mean, I'm calling it poetry. It's they're not written as poems, but I mean, yeah. it's, to me, it's poetic truth, just over and over and over. It's like, oh, what's in the next one? What's in the next one? Just yeah, I would say like just great meditative or contemplative right. or yeah it's contemplative like for sure stopping and and thinking about them it's not a book to be rushed through no it's a book to be savored and it's but, not that big a book either yeah but beautiful what a great beautiful. vacation book honestly oh yeah oh man yeah i wish i had thought to bring that with me to read that on the, on the ocean would be cool too but you already had it in your heart <laughs> i did i did in fact you know it reminded me of it. I mean, that's how much a part of me it is now. I'm, I'm yeah. looking at this rocky, the, the waves hitting the rocks, and I'm like, oh, you know, this is like that. So what have you got now? What's next for you? Well, this is a book I have been reading off and on. It's mm-hmm. quite extensive. I first heard about it at ALA Midwinter when the authors did a talk about it. It's called 400 Souls, A Community History of African America, 1619 to 2019. Mm. And it's edited by Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha N. Blaine. I think technically it's Dr. Keisha N. Blaine might be also Dr. Kendi, Mm -hmm. but he's the one who's pretty well known for how to be anti-racist and stamped from the beginning. Those are two really giant books that he's written. But what this is, is it attempts to tell the story of African people in America, Black America, from the first time anybody landed on the shore. So that happened right before the Mayflower in a boat that I'd never heard of in a ship called the White Lion. So that was the first thing I learned from this book, but not the last. (laughs) It's um, divided up into a whole bunch of contributors and they took a specific span of time. So sometimes like a period of four years and it's going completely chronologically. So I actually listened to it in audio. So you'll have a person who says 1974 to 1978, you know, and then mm-hmm. someone will have a topic about those four years. So they're not trying to talk about everything. They pick and choose little pieces of history. And then how they write about it is kind of up to who they are. So you have historians, you have fiction writers, you have poets. And I think that the print version might also have some art in there. But since I was listening, I didn't get to see any of that. And then there's a whole bunch of different narrators. And some people read their own pieces like Angela Davis, the Angela Davis, Angela K. Davis. And then other people had narrators read their Hmm. contributions. And so I learned so much. I mean, I would say this is an area of history that I know we're not taught enough about in school. You know, you learn about Martin Luther King Jr. You learn about the civil rights movement everything is fine now at the end. You know, it's been really clear to me just even moving to the South and the Black Lives Matter movement that I really just don't know all that much. And in the past few years, I've been trying to read some, but I'm never going to get to the end of that journey, I don't think. Mm -hmm. So this was an interesting way to look at it. And it helps put the stuff into context, like what else was going on during this time? And what did it matter that this was happening? And so like, one of the moments that I really remember in what I was listening to, I think yesterday was they talk about the board versus Brown versus education decision, which, you know, I think we do learn about, it's a pretty Mm -hmm. significant decision. That's Mm -hmm. where the judges ruled unanimously that racial segregation was unconstitutional. But one of the writers was talking about these people that created art after that and the contributions they made in their art. So it was A Raisin in the Sun, Mm -hmm. which won the Tony in 1960. So Brown versus Education was 1954. And then there's just kind of this movement of, you know, our art matters here's how it matters, maybe people being a little bit more open to it for once. And so then there's these certain people that rise up and then have these noticeable contributions. I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to see how those two things like related to each other, which I I don't think I'd ever thought about before, for instance. And learning about characters like Ida B. Wells, who 
founded one of the first black newspapers in Chicago, which yes, I've actually burned to the ground at one point. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and she was a force and an organization called the Combahee River Collective, which was a black lesbian collective that was basically started in Boston to try to combat segregation in schools in the 70s, because this in the 70s, the schools were still segregated in Boston illegally. And then the effect and the impact they had long term and the movements that had offshooted from there. Anyway, <laughs> so it's like, it's just like so many little things like that, like kind of like one of those did you know yeah. books, you know, like. Yeah, what a fascinating <laughs> way to do that. I mean, that's a really interesting approach. Yeah. Um, I, I said, oh, yeah, to Ida B. Wells because she was mentioned in the Bully Pulpit. Ah, uh, which yeah. Which is a book I think that I talked about here. I can't remember. You did. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. I bet she, she was, was a bit of a fly in his ointment, huh? <laughs> right. She was a journalist in, I can't remember the name of the paper, but it actually right around in Theodore Roosevelt's time became a really big deal. And this book was talking about how she started her own stuff because the places that she wanted to be vocal, they either wouldn't allow her in because she was a woman or because she was black, sometimes both. And so Mm. um, she kind of had to make her own way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I had never really heard about her, I don't think. And there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of people that don't have written down right now that had that same kind of effect. And it's interesting because you know, the one thing we all learn is Martin Luther King Jr. And he's hardly in here at all. I mean, he, <laughs> he's mentioned in passing, but more in the context of the Black Power movement and Malcolm X and some of the things that happened in different places during that time. But I guess they figured we knew. <laughs> right, right. How Not the only story. <laughs> and having all the different perspectives and all the different voices was just cool. Like it felt like a community history, right? It didn't feel like just one person's point of view or filter or, right, you know, right. like like there was one way to think about it, which I thought was really cool. I mean, obviously there's some radical voices in there, but there's also just some people who have studied this for a long time and, and know mm. a lot of things about it. So yeah, yeah it no, was really... No question. That's cool. I mean, I listened to the audio, but I kind of feel like I want to have it in print because to refer back to it, I think would be easier. Mm-hmm. Print. Fascinating. Really yeah, that, that sounds really interesting to me. Here's my shame admission. I've never actually read the longer books by Ibram X. Kendi because mm-hmm. I checked them out from the library before and they're so daunting because they're so long. Um. And apparently this was an easier way for me to consume history because I don't usually read much history, I have uh-huh. to be honest. Um, I'm more likely to get stuff in a like a historical novel. <laughs> <laughs> I still want to go back and read them, but wow. I still haven't. So is How to Be an Anti-Racist a huge book? That one isn't as bad. I still haven't uh-huh. read it, but that one isn't okay. as bad, but stamped from the beginning. I think it was because it was on the shortlist for the National Book Award for Nonfiction one year. And I was like, oh, well, I'm going to be the first one to check it out from the library. And it's, well, it's only 592 pages, but it's the (laughs) definitive history of racist ideas in America. And so it uses the lives of five major American intellectuals. Well, I guess focusing on just five people, that's a good idea. Maybe that would make it easier to read. Maybe I should have tried it. (laughs) (laughs) I like literally, I checked it out. It sat on my desk at work and then I turned it back in again. So it says here, I'm looking at it too, Cotton Mather, Thomas Jefferson, William Lloyd Garrison, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Angela Davis. I've read Angela Davis by herself, and she's she's a force. (laughs) (laughs) She's a real proponent of the Palestinian movement too, and so I've read an entire book by her that's just about that. And she's, she tried to align the American civil rights with Palestinian rights, which I thought was really interesting. And there's actually a person in this 400 souls book who was really influential in the black power movement around the time of Malcolm X, but then he moves to Africa because he felt like he had more influence or ability to really move forward there. And he was someone I had never even heard of before. Wow. So there's lots of things like that that are interesting to encounter, I think. Yeah. Well, sounds good. I'd learn a ton for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's there's so much I don't know about all of that. The hardest thing is like, oh, then how do you how do you hold on to the stuff that you've learned? I would have to go back and have something I could look up just to verify my facts, I think. But well, yeah, I guess that's probably why you want the book on the shelf. It's Mm -hmm. just to be able to refer when it comes up. You're like, I know I read that somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. There it is. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. tell me about your third book. My third book is uh, different. <laughs> it's almost a, a return to the same in a way, right? I've got a book here called Every Dead Thing by John Connolly. Now, um, this is the first book in what's called the Charlie Parker uh, series. And I know that Charlie Parker is a famous jazz musician. But that is not what this is about. He's got his name from that. What this is about, there's a blurb on the back, buy it and be scared from the Times, right? (laughs) Prepare to have the spine tingled by this one from the Irish Times. It's almost a horror novel, um, but it is a a police thing too. What do you call it? A police procedural, but it's it's a serial killer book. So at the very, very opening, the very first thing that happens is that the main character, Charlie Parker, his family is killed by a serial killer, his wife and daughter. And uh, I would I would definitely warn that it, it is grisly. We don't see the murder happen, but just we vividly are told how the bodies are left and everything like that. So this guy is a police officer, this, this main character, and he actually was off drinking when this happened, when this occurred. And when he got home, this is what he came home to. So after that, he leaves the police department. He becomes a private investigator. And as you can imagine, he's messed up by this. And now the rest of the book is him solving things that are going on in the present and also solving what happened to his family in the past. And they kind of entwine because the person who killed his family actually contacts him in in one of those uh, spooky, you know, the voices uh, altered. You know, he calls him on the phone and he, the, the voice sounds abnormal so that, you know, they, he can't tell who he is on the other end, that kind of stuff. So I mentioned this. I wanted to, to talk about this because, first of all, I think it's really, really well written. And, and though it does get grisly, it, it's written really well. He's an Irish writer. So, you know, I I mentioned that there's an Irish Times blurb. Again, his name is John Connolly. But he's writing, this story occurs, the setting is in New York City. But he is an Irishman writing about New York City, which itself is very interesting. So he lived Um, in New York City when his family is killed? um, I'm talking about the author. Oh, okay. (laughs) Right. Yeah, (laughs) the author author is Irish, but lives, but wrote this about New York City. Okay, gotcha. So let me just give you just a little sample of his writing. Um, This is uh, not grisly. (laughs) It is cold in the car, cold as the grave. I prefer to leave the AC on full to let the falling temperatures keep me alert. The volume on the radio is low, but I can still hear a tune, vaguely insistent over the sound of the engine. It's early REM, something about shoulders and rain. I've left Cornwall Bridge about eight miles behind, and soon I'll be entering South Canaan, then Canaan itself, before crossing the state line into Massachusetts. Ahead of me, the bright sun is fading as day bleeds slowly into night. That's actually the very first paragraph, and it's in italics. And the author does this throughout this whole book. It's a very interesting way of dealing with time. What I just read was present, and then we go to his past, all in a prologue. And the way that the author bounces between past and present is very atypical, but it works. And it adds a little feel of a kind of a supernatural to it because sometimes he'll be talking to maybe like his daughter or something, but it's in the past, but yet it's in the present. It it kind of bleeds together the way that he's written it. Like he'll be a paragraph in the past and then jump to the present. It's easy to tell what he's doing with uh, the hard copy book. But I think if you were reading this in a in an audiobook, I think it would be harder. But I, I found that kind of refreshing a way to do that. So is it marked in some way? Or? It's uh, it's in italics. He uses italics. Oh yeah. You know, I told you that he was drunk again. Now now I'm at the end of the prologue. It said, "I had a drunk's alibi. While someone stole away my wife and child, I downed bourbon in a bar. But they still come to me in my dreams. Sometimes smiling and beautiful as they were in life." and sometimes faceless and bloodied as death left them, beckoning me further into darkness where love has no place and evil hides, adorned with thousands of unseeing eyes and the flayed faces of the dead. And then the next paragraph is in italics. It is dark when I arrive and the gate is closed and locked. The wall is low and I climb it easily. I walk carefully so as not to tread on the memorial stones or flowers 
until I stand before them. Even in the darkness, I know where to find them, and they, in their turn, can find me. They come to me sometimes in the margin between sleeping and waking, when the streets are silent in the dark, or as the dawn seeps through the gap in the curtains, bathing the room in a dim, slow-growing light. They come to me, and I see their shapes in the gloom, my wife and child together, watching me silently, ensanguined in unquiet death. They come to me, their breath in the night breezes that brush my cheek, and their fingers in the tree branches tapping on my window. They come to me, and I am no longer alone. So those are two paragraphs right next to each other. One was in the past, and one was now. And he does that throughout. I just thought it was cool. It was effective. And uh, writing a little notch higher than I would say a typical thriller would be. Which got me thinking about series in the first place. You know, this is the first book in a series. And I would compare it really favorably to James Lee Burke. Mm -hmm. I think James Lee Burke is someone who writes really well. I love to read his prose. And he his series is the Dave Robo Show series. And I've read maybe four books in that series. Which again, it made me think, I tend not to finish series. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's what I wanted to say is, John Connolly reminded me of James Lee Burke in that I feel like they're both writing high quality prose in these stories, even though it is grisly. And I know that I looked up John Connolly and he wrote this one book, you know, and then it was like, well, we want a bunch of these, you know, says the publisher. And then he said, uh, for the rest of the books in this series, he's actually been writing them in a way where they kind of tie in really well together. Like something may happen in book three that in book six pays off. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, that's cool. So so he's kind of leaving stuff in these books that way. I guess that's kind of typical for series now, but I got to thinking about series that I'm, that I'm into a few books. But again, I, I don't know if it surprised me very much, but I'm just like, man, I tend not to finish series uh, at all, period. Just in the um, uh, mystery arena, I've got the Dave Robo Show series by James Lee Burke, um, Walt Longmire um, by Craig Johnson. I've read uh, two of those and liked them very much. The Inspector Gamache series by Louise Penny. The first one is called Still Life, which I really liked. Didn't continue, even though I really liked it. And then there's one called the Linda Walheim series by Mehdi Ivy Harrison. The first one is called The Bishop's Wife. And she's written five or six of those now. Which you talked about on the podcast. I did. I did talk about that on the podcast. And what's interesting about that one is, Somebody asked me the other day, is there a book that you can recommend that kind of talks about what it's like to be in a Mormon town? And I said, well, The Bishop's Wife <laughs> by <laughs> Mitty Ivy Harrison, because that's what it's doing. It's, 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 a, it's a, a mystery set in Utah in a Mormon community. You know, I say Mormon community. It's a community that uh, has Mormons in it. <laughs> you know, where they're they, like they're, they're the majority. <laughs> exactly where they are the majority. That that's the best way to put that. I won't get into it too much, but the the bishop is like the head of a, a church in the LDS faith, and the bishop's wife often or always really has a prominent role. And so the book is called The Bishop's Wife. Linda Walheim is her name, and it's it's a mystery and. There's like five of those or five or six of those now. And I really like to read them all because it was very good. But I think I want to continue in that. Well, I feel like there's a lot of things for me that go into it. I was thinking about how the writing that you read, it felt a little bit like Tana French does. Have you ever mm. tried her? I have not. She's the Dublin Murder Society is the name of the series. And then she's read, written a few others after that that is she aren't connected. Is she Irish as well? Yeah. <laughs> it's not necessarily the same character, like the same uh -huh. central like detective character. Like I assumed that it would be and then it wasn't. That's kind of interesting. And sometimes they'll come back around, but they connect in different ways. But you don't necessarily have to have read, you know, each one in order, which I think is different. But sometimes like I have to really be in the mood for her because her books are a little more dense because of that. Like she'll, it kind of slows down mm. the, you know, it's less thrilling. It's more crime based, but like, Slows, I know people that will read those back to back to back to back because mm. they just love her. Like sometimes I've gotten tired of series because they start to feel formulaic. Like I had read a bunch of the Nevada bar and a pigeon mysteries, the park ranger, national park, park ranger. I don't think it was because those got formulaic it's because they kept getting more and more violent. And I was just oh. like, Whoa, I can't take yeah. this anymore. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You probably want to stay away from every dead thing then. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, and it just depends on like how much of it is on the page, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then I just finished, I feel very proud. I just finished a science fiction series. Although I don't know that I knew it was the last book until after I'd read it. The I've talked about every other book from this <laughs> series on the podcast, the Becky Chambers uh, Wayfarers oh, series. Wayfarers, I just read yeah. The Galaxy and the Ground, the Ground Within. I think that's oh, what it's cool. called. And it was and so good. And I'm like, I'm it, it was ready good. for it oh, to that's... be done. I have got to read that series. <laughs> I have the tr- I have the trilogy. Yeah. It, but but now the increasingly ina- or <laughs> inaccurately named trilogy. Um, so now it's four books, you're saying. Yeah, it's just four. And, and she says she's moving she's... on now. So uh... but I don't know. Like she's so good at writing interesting aliens. Like there's not really a lot that goes on in the books, but mm-hmm. um, it's about people or beings you know, getting along uh-huh. with one another. But because I'd read all of them, I knew that one of the characters in this fourth one was the lover of a character who I know from the first one, but I'm not sure that that matters all that much. Like, I don't think if that's the only connecting piece, you know, it probably doesn't matter all that much, yeah. but yeah, I feel like you, like I read a lot of first book in series, <laughs> But not. Who, who's reading all these series? <laughs> yeah, I think but, that people yeah. who read the series really love series. Like they're doing. I think it on so purpose. too. Like you said, you knew somebody who read the the Tana French back to back to back or Nevada Bar maybe. Yeah, I've seen people do that where they'll just read a series just back to back, like uh, let's say Lois McMaster Bujold's Vorkosigan series, just like book 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 book, you know, and it's like thirteen books or something now, and they read them all. I'm just like, wow, you know, I, I've never done anything like that ever. Well, do you think you might read another John Connolly book? Yeah, I think I would. Because I do like the supernatural aspect to it. And and even though it is grisly, I, I don't know why, but yeah, I, it's interesting. So know? then how did you pick this one up to start with? It was recommended by a booktube friend, actually, a guy who lives in Ireland. Yeah, he said, because uh, we read The Exorcist together. It was another buddy read. That one, it was just, you know, I got to know him and I, we talk often. That one was not on BookTube or anything like that. We just read it and talked about it uh, amongst ourselves. And uh, um, he mentioned John Connolly. And he said, yeah, you know, he said, I think you really like those. And so hmm. I picked up the first one. Well, you should ask him if he's ever read Tana French. I will. Is there anything that you are reading next or that you're already reading? That I'm reading now. Yes, I am reading um, Gone with the Wind. And that's probably coming out of left field. <laughs> I've never read that book before. I'm about halfway through it, reading it for a podcast, finding it very interesting. It's completely not what I thought it was. You know how sometimes with books that are, you know, especially popular ones, you're like, at least I am. I know what that is. I'm not too interested in it. I just, you know, I, I know what that book is. And I haven't seen the movie or anything. And the book is not what I thought it was. There's some, it's some of what I thought it was, but it's very interesting. And then um, I'm reading The Atrocity Archives by Charles Strauss and enjoying that very much. <laughs> In fact, that's a, a funny, crazy read is what that is. Hmm. But but I'm liking it. It's kind of a Lovecraftian office thing. <laughs> It's like, you know, HP Lovecraft meets The Office. Uh, Doesn't it have of. a 3D printer in it? Like before uh, 3D printers existed. Am I remembering uh, <laughs> it right? You sure could be. You sure <laughs> could be. It's like almost like a like a CIA or something, but it's comical. Yeah. And they're dealing with creatures and summoning and all this other stuff, you know. So there's this this poor guy who's um kind of being swept along by events. Um, and, and being asked to do things like, okay, we need you to go break into this thing. And, but it's funny. It's a fun, fun read so far. Sounds fun. Uh, and I did pick up a Viking history as well. I'm hoping to get to this very soon, but it's called Children of Ash and Elm, A History of the Vikings by Neil Price. So what are you reading right now? Well, I'm finishing up the um, poetry anthology for the read-along that we'll be discussing shortly, but I also ended up with a few books that other people in Instagram are going to be reading along, kind of buddy reads, I guess. One of them is Even As We Breathe by Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle, which Kendra talked about on the last episode. No, not the last episode, two episodes ago, 218. Mm -hmm. Another book I bought right away. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. And then interestingly, one that's been sitting on my shelf for several years, I've never cracked open, but someone is 
going to read it. So I was like, hey, I'm going to read it too. Always Coming Home by Ursula K. Le Guin. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Which I always no. thought was like a memoir, but apparently no. It's <laughs> there's like aliens in it and stuff. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm looking aliens forward to it. in your memoir. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's so, too good. Well, thank you, Scott, for coming and talking books with me. Always a pleasure. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Thank you so much. for listening to the Reading Envy podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Reading Envy or find a complete listing of our podcast episodes as well as all of the books discussed on today's episode at readingenvy.com.